Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FinTech for the People. I'm Matt Shar, Operating Partner here at Venture Lab, and we're continuing our series on the topics of Web3, blockchain, and crypto, and their potential impacts on financial inclusion. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Paul Nelson from the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. Paul is a senior advisor and the acting team lead for the digital finance team at the agency. In this episode, we'll talk a bit more on how USAID looks more broadly at technology as an enabler to promote financial access. Later on in the show, we dive a bit more into some of the challenges that Web3 must address in order to prove itself as an accessible, compliant, and safe solution to help advance greater financial inclusion. It's a really great lens into how a larger aid organization like USAID views emerging technologies, and it's very timely given the latest movements in the crypto space in particular. Paul, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, glad to be here. So just to kick things off, would would just be great to hear your role within the agency and how it relates to financial inclusion, since we are a a podcast talking about technology, innovation in in the financial inclusion space. Tell me a bit more around where all that work fits into uh, USAID's mandate. Uh, sure. Well, we sit in a, a, the ITR hub in, in our bureau, and one primary responsibility that our division has is coordinating the agency's first all-of-agency digital strategy. And through that process, we, we've got this mandate to strengthen and promote the development of open, inclusive, and secure digital ecosystems. So that's kind of on the technology side. And we help our colleagues in the building and in the field and our partners that we work with, we help them think through different interventions or approaches to advancing those objectives on the technology side. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're the digital finance team, so we also have this legacy of focusing on financial inclusion. So using tech as a way to ideally to promote financial well-being and resilience and uh, empowerment for communities that we work with. And you know, of course, because we think about this from a technology lens, we think through, all right, how can technology help? How could it expand access to different types of services, ideally more useful services, more cost-effective services, but then also thinking in terms of outcomes, what are some dependencies or issues that we need to look out for potential risks that might be introduced as technology becomes more evident across the financial sector? What what are some of the things that that you as a team have provided some guidance or advice on when it comes to technology enabling financial inclusion, um, either from a promoting financial inclusion or even identifying some of the risks that have been involved with with how technology can be used to to serve that purpose? At an agency level, we've we've engaged in a range of areas, and some of it is at a country specific level, and in other cases, it's focused on broader themes or or issues that are relevant across markets. In a couple of countries, we've provided facilitation, market facilitation support to local stakeholders that are thinking through the adoption of a real-time payments environment, thinking through interoperability challenges or aspirations at a country level. We've also, at a global level, supported large partnerships and alliances focused on addressing the gender divide specifically and promoting women's economic empowerment and looking at how technology can help, but also, uh, to my earlier point, looking at ways in which we can actively get in front of potential amplification of inequalities. Just one example of that has been some work that some colleagues of mine have supported through the Equitable AI Challenge, which has looked at 
this through the prism of artificial intelligence, which of course is being used in a lot of different fintech verticals. But then also we've got a partnership with MasterCard that has looked at um, empowering women entrepreneurs in the fintech space so that they can play a more dominant or prominent role uh, in developing inclusive financial services. I'd be curious when you think about working with potential partners, whether it's Venture Lab as a small fund or even something like MasterCard from a technology perspective and overall just, just, just impact, I think, in the financial inclusion space. What are some characteristics or factors that are really central to building the right kinds of partnerships in that regard? What is it you look for? What are the things that, that ultimately you're looking for in terms of, of key outcomes and how you, how you maintain that relationship through, throughout, the, throughout the engagement you've built with them? Luckily at USAID, we have, for the last couple of decades, prioritized private sector engagement, which sometimes is taken to mean working with corporate uh, firms, for-profit commercial firms, but actually captures any non-governmental stakeholder. So it could be a an NGO that uh, uh, works with women entrepreneurs, like I was just mentioning earlier, or it could be a tech firm doing something, or it could be a university that supports R&D in the fintech landscape or, or actually invests resources in measuring outcomes from a financial well-being or financial inclusion perspective. And given that longstanding focus on private sector engagement, you know, there's kind of a set of issues that we would look out for for any particular partnership or, or engagement. You know, one obvious one, but important one is just clarifying where there is alignment in objectives. You know, so many firms have or many organizations have a mission orientation to them. And so it's very clear where USAID and those entities might might align. Uh, so, for example, promoting gender equality and equity or women's economic empowerment is something that sometimes is left by the wayside in the for-profit world, even though it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> and uh, and so sometimes there needs to be a little bit more proactive engagement to make that uh, to make clear that that's a shared priority. And uh, in addition to that, there's relevant expertise and comparative advantages. So USAID, you know, we have large networks of partners that we've worked with for years in dozens of countries. We tend to have a fairly good insight into the needs or challenges or aspirations of communities that we've supported over the years. And on the other hand, on the private sector side, a lot of times there's capital on offer or there's really deep in-depth technological expertise or expertise in, when it comes to financial services development. And uh, not only that, when it comes to the sustainability issue, it's those private sector actors that are planning on being in that community or working with that community in, for that community that will have a primary say in whether we actually will achieve sustained outcomes, whether it's to, again, improve someone's uh, income, help them secure employment, improve their livelihood, access to credit, all those different aspirations. I want to come back to this point you mentioned around particularly working with private sector organizations in that there, there could be varying interests, but also the way that, that, uh, that a solution is marketed to talk about financial inclusion. And, and even as I think about the waves in, in, uh, in Web3, that there's much discussion around financial inclusion. And I think whether or not it is truly inclusive, I think is always an open question. And uh, you know it depends on, on a case-by-case basis, but I feel like that's actually a good segue into the conversation around these emerging technologies uh, in blockchain and Web3. And we'd be, we'd be curious to hear your lens on um, when the agency started started noticing this technology as a method of trying to introduce financial inclusion and access to capital. 
And you know, maybe just talking a bit about the journey and uh, and how that's evolved and how you as an agency have, have started to look at it. Well, number one, I should say this isn't new to us. I know it's been in the headlines a lot lately, but we've followed the space for a number of years, um, as early as I think 2014. Uh, I know this uh, was on our radar at that time for people that are aware of CGAP, Consultative Group to Assist the Poor, which is an organization that we, along with many other actors, fund. At that time, there had been some confusion or discussions regarding whether Bitcoin is mobile money and basically some concerns among certain policymakers regarding mobile money, given what they were observing in the Bitcoin space at that time. So we started looking at it. I started paying attention to it at that point to better understand how does this environment work? Where did this innovation come from? What is its aspirations? What are the risks going to the what initially prompted the, the inquiry? And through that, you know, we've done a number of things. We've organized staff training and webinars. We've done some external facing initiatives just to better understand how people are interacting with the, the technology or with the services associated with the technology. We funded targeted research and assessments. Uh, and I think 2019 or 2018, we released the blockchain primer. And that was intended to kind of equip our colleagues and stakeholders with some questions to ask just as they themselves got more exposure to the space, not with the intent of encouraging people to do more, but rather to just better understand the relevance, potentially, of this technology or service providers in this space. And based on a greater understanding of relevance, then they might be able to better understand whether it would be appropriate to whatever problem they might have been facing. Um, And then, you know, we've also a limited way on technical assistance as well uh, to a couple of groups in this space. And as of now, we, you know, I could bucket our general approach or frame of reference in this space in three, three buckets. So, you know, number one, thinking about how we can address safeguards and risks that are specific to, to crypto. So I'll just use crypto as shorthand for, for Web3 in this general space. Number two, just redoubling efforts to address core economic or governance challenges that for years we've supported programming on. So if people have a limited trust in the formal financial system, what are some of the root causes that result in that lack of trust and what can we do to address that? And then uh, third, and this is actually more of an area for for other colleagues in USAID, but I'll just note it, uh, in humanitarian contexts, we always talk about continuing to support modality neutral approaches. So the reason why I mention that is because uh, sometimes Um, Crypto has come up in the context of cash transfer programs for people that are in very difficult circumstances. And, you know, USAID supports cash transfer programs that have relied on vouchers, paper vouchers, e-vouchers, but also digital payment channels and physical cash. So you might not be surprised that um, over the last few years, many organizations have looked to crypto as a potential additional modality to rely on. So you've mentioned as part of USAID's mandate that your, your focus is on financial inclusion. And so in that case, you said that you're generally agnostic to the type of technology that's used to deliver those solutions. Um, but, but you mentioned also that the crypto is particular providing uh, is, is a, a bit concerning to you all. And I thought it'd be good to elucidate a bit more on why when you think all the, the the dimensions of technologies and innovations that have tried to deliver financial inclusion, you mentioned crypto. 
as one that's bringing some pause. So, so maybe speak a bit more to, to what concerns you're seeing with the adoption of crypto and crypto-centric technologies in delivering these types of solutions. Yeah, I would say areas that we are paying particular attention to in countries where we work include the following. So number one, immature technology and governance models or models that are used for managing these distributed systems upon which crypto services are offered that may not be as stable or as resilient as they theoretically are presented or or described in white papers that you see. Um, Likewise, uh, in a number of countries where we work, there are uh, unresolved regulatory issues. Some of the regulatory frameworks, whether from a financial stability perspective or a consumer protection perspective or from an illicit finance perspective, are weak, non-existent, or incomplete as it relates to crypto, which means that you may have some firms that are offering crypto services in countries where we work that do not offer the end users the benefit of safeguards that we all rely on, and that those safeguards protect the financial system from uh, being used to facilitate illicit finance flows, but they also can protect consumers from being exposed to fraud or or the collapse of a, of a financial service provider they're relying on. And then that's another area, this, this issue of the crypto space um, being subject to a, a number of different types of fraud and abuse, partly due to these at times nascent regulatory and oversight frameworks. I uh, had seen the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they put out a data spotlight in June of this year, said that since 2021, they had received reports from over 46,000 people of crypto scams that had resulted in losses of upward of a billion dollars. And those were just reported losses. So uh, you could expect the actual number to be larger, particularly for countries where where we work or, or globally, at least. And then, you know, the other issue is uh, kind of, again, I mentioned illicit finance, that is a concern here in countries where we work. There can be concerns regarding illicit finance, money laundering, terrorist finance. One issue that has come up is whether countries in which we work have in place regulatory frameworks to help prevent that. And then also whether service providers in those countries are in compliance with any applicable rules that apply to that space. So those are just a few that we highlighted and, and pay attention to. Got it. Yeah. And it, that's certainly it's it's concerning when um, there is a, especially tools and solutions that are purported to provide financial inclusion or, or enhance someone's ability to get connected to the global financial system is actually being defrauded by it. Um, it's, it's, it's really creating the, the exact opposite of what you would, what you'd hope for. And I, I, I suppose a follow-up to that is you mentioned a lot around regulation and it's not as if people, you know, I, I, a lot of people that are in the, are in the crypto space, they've come from fintech or they have a financial services background. And, and so they have to be keenly aware, right. Of, of what's necessary from a regulatory perspective to have a healthy and functioning financial system that can hopefully be, you know, at its core inclusive. What is it there? Do you think that there's some deliberate ignorance here that there's, that there's greed, uh, you know, and it, we can't, we can't ever, I think, speculate on the, the motivations of people, but what is it that you're seeing in all of this that you think that the maximalists or the people that are promoting this uh, are not seeing or, or sharing? That, that would actually move this, this whole system toward the proper regulatory frameworks to enable inclusion in a more effective way? It's a good question. I think as a development agency, we, we're focused on outcomes and we're focused on 
market systems, uh, which means you know we have we we may have a broader aperture than than folks that are in the industry or focused on a particular service or a particular uh, business model in industry in the crypto space because we're focused on outcomes and systemic dynamics and how the private sector interacts and how the oversight and governance framework applies to a particular area, we're maybe a little more cognizant of some of the risks or safeguards that need to be addressed or in place, or cognizant that there may be a complex set of issues that are contributing to development challenges that we face that are maybe not as amenable to tidy, simple solutions. And we, for example, uh, work in countries where communities uh, have long struggled with deep-rooted corruption, uh, limited capacity within public sector institutions and, and uh, at a governance level, uh, longstanding financial exclusion, mobile access issues where people simply don't have access to a baseline level of technology that would enable them to engage in a more data-intensive digital economy, which certainly applies to the crypto context. And so the question that would apply to any innovation, crypto included, is whether that innovation is capable of operating in those environments in a manner that still allows it to function and make people's lives better. So if crypto, for example, purports to be a potential way to expand access to a to just a transaction account of some form or a payments mechanism, or if it purports to be a, a way to access new types of lending, since we all know that there's a significant access to finance gap for small businesses in countries where we work, then the question is, can the crypto-based models that address those or hope to address those issues not introduce risks or function despite the more difficult operating environment they might find themselves in? And perhaps let's think through what are the things that need to be in place for it to work as it's sold to. And we'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it, what, what I'm hearing from you is there needs to be a balance there, right, of private sector investment in these technologies in some way, uh, an agreement amongst industry industry participants, uh, you know, responsible parties to identify the types of regulatory frameworks that need to be put in place. But also it sounds like a, a system of checks and balances to make sure that those technologies are actually achieving what they've, what they've set out to do. I suppose that a, that a fair ideal world that we would want to create in order for these technologies to actually achieve their goals. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that loosely captures it. Uh, ideally, you have a have a financial sector or a digital economy in which the market incentives are aligned with policy goals that uh, that we would all share or hope to promote, whether it's financial stability, protecting consumers, protecting investors, providing access to safe and affordable services. You know, all, all those things matter and the private sector has a role to play. Um, I think over the last decade in the financial inclusion space, um, a lot of central banks have learned how they can create more space for responsible innovation. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the effective use of tools like regulatory sandboxes or innovation hubs or regulator office hours, all of which in one form or another are intended to 
either increase the capacity of the 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 oversight bodies to grapple with and understand the implications of these different types of innovations or to make it a little bit easier for the the innovations that actually do have real promise to enter the market and and grow and introduce new forms of competition and um so i i think the insights from that have have reflected this recognition that i mentioned earlier that we operate in all, invariably complex systems and having a process or a framework that allows issues to systematic be systematically understood is ultimately to everyone's benefit and that means being able to really critically understand not just opportunities but also the risks or limitations or the dependencies involved with any particular innovation yeah and i i tend to be on that on that same side and and maybe just as a not to be a, a devil's advocate but but to offer a maybe a counterpoint or at least what we hear in the in the crypto space is one of the things that many advocates uh, in in the space claim is that innov- uh, is that regulatory frameworks simply don't keep up with innovation um i think we've seen examples though where central banks and centralized institutions have been able to really advance innovation if you look at an example for UPI in India or you look at you look at Mpeso which was a you know in, in many instances has been effective in expanding financial services to many many people in India and various countries in Africa respectively uh, and, and so it almost feels like there's this this tension between is the is the governing body ready for innovation and are they proactively seeking it out well, I would say one place to start is just on evidence gathering and being really critical and analytical in understanding the impacts and and like I was saying earlier, the risks and opportunities of any business model. I think as people first start to peel back the layers of any particular innovation, this could apply to crypto, but it could also apply equally to mobile money back in 2007 and eight in, in Kenya. Uh, it can take a little bit of time for for either the market participants to understand the business model and how to make that work, or for consumers to understand the utility uh, and then potentially test and adopt, or for the over the, the regulatory bodies to understand how they have to approach it, how they can enable it, how they can uh, appropriately mitigate risks that might arise from it. In this space, I think we're still in the process of um, uncovering that evidence base. There certainly are uh, many white papers, of course. There are certainly a lot of uh, studies that are speaking to the potentials or to the to the uh, aspirations that the that the industry says it has. There are maybe fewer that can point to uh, a clear links to positive financial well-being outcomes, for example, or uh, evidence that uh, really unwraps the risks or issues in the space that need to be accounted for in order for any. In, in order for us to actually be confident that we would be improving people's lives through through the use of crypto. You mentioned earlier uh, this, or just a bit ago, this idea of moving to a post-regulatory world. I, I don't know how feasible or likely that, that would be or whether that would be in uh, the interest of people where where, where we work. Uh, as you know, the, the White House recently issued an executive order on promoting the responsible development of digital assets uh, earlier this year. And um, and there it's speaking to the importance of safeguards, which also includes having sound oversight uh, that's consistent with international standards 
and is also necessary to ensure that people are protected from harm. And uh, some of the analysis, like what I mentioned from the FTC earlier, suggests that it, moving to a post-regulatory state is not is maybe not the way to improve outcomes. I think maybe one one thing, Paul, I'd, I'd like to, you know, just just zooming out from this conversation around these new adoptive technologies, there might be might be listeners to this who are, are thinking of building building something within, uh, you know, utilizing these technologies, are are interested in financial inclusion more broadly. When you think about the marks or the the characteristics of a financially inclusive world from USAID's perspective, what are the dimensions you look for? And and if someone is looking to build solutions in in the space, what are some of the ways that they can measure their own idea or solutions progress toward that effort? Let's start at the macro and then move backward. So ultimately, when we talk about digital finance specifically or uh, digital financial inclusion, we're talking ultimately about trying to promote at the outcomes level empowerment, resilience, and well-being. And those three words, empowerment, resilience, and well-being, have many dimensions to them. But in the financial services context, you know, it means having some measure of agency or control or a sense of security and a sense of op- optimism and opportunity in pursuing economic opportunities and covering your day-to-day expenses. In, uh, in in achieving some level of financial health. And so in order to get there, we are always reliant on evidence-driven efforts that learn what works, learn what doesn't work, whether from a policy level or an innovation level or from an end-user level perspective, and uh, and then developing interventions or programs or partnerships to uh, to move forward. And so uh, you know if you break that down at a at an ecosystem level, what we often emphasize through our programs, at least is, uh, you know, on the innovation front, what is responsible innovation or investment or market conduct? So when, we, when we're working with innovators as a grant maker or uh, partnering with financial service providers on loan guarantees, for example, um, that keyword there is responsible. So we don't just want innovation. We want innovation that, that can demonstrably improve people's lives, um, that it takes due account of the environments in which that innovation occurs and is also sustainable. Likewise, we uh, encourage folks to take a more intentional approach to reduce gender divides and promoting uh, women's economic empowerment and equality and, and gender equality and gender equity. There's a strong gendered dimension to a lot of the issues that we face, and uh, I think that has to be part of this as well. Um, at the enabling environment level, sound enabling environments, robust safeguards. Uh, And a sound enabling environment can be one that creates space for responsible innovation, but it's also one that uh, has safeguards, whether from a consumer protection standpoint or an illicit finance standpoint or a financial stability standpoint. At the end user level, customer-centric services. So are we addressing real needs with a particular service or do we still have work to do on that front? Do we know enough about what a particular market segment needs or wants, or are we just kind of speculating and hoping that they'll like it? Uh, and then lastly, and this is maybe a comment for more for other actors, uh, other development agencies, for example, that that support broader development programs and our partners, but being more systems oriented so that even if we are working on a particular issue within a within an economy or sector, 
we are cognizant that there might be other dynamics or forces at play that will influence our ability to promote outcomes uh, in any particular area, because we want to ultimately address root causes of financial inclusion or exclusion, uh, or root causes of financial fragility. And we also want to identify and mitigate risks. So one innovation might be very appealing, and it might even seem you know, like a responsible, well-informed one. But for example, in the digital context, we recognize there's also cybersecurity concerns that you might need to think about or, or at least inquire about with, a, uh, with an innovator in the private sector to make sure that they have addressed those concerns. Because if you don't, then you might inadvertently introduce risk uh, when, when you didn't intend to do that. Uh, and then lastly, and again, this is kind of tied more to what we do as a development agency, but we try to focus on outcomes ultimately, not just outputs. We may be mobilizing capitals today or, or providing a grant to, a, to an innovator tomorrow. Our interest is not simply that particular relationship. Our interest is what that relationship can help us advance or move toward. You know, this podcast episode, we're talking about crypto innovations specifically and how in the world of fintech, they may, they may help or, or hurt the cause of financial inclusion. And one thing that we've come to repeatedly is this issue of risks. Do we understand them? Can they be mitigated? How well does industry understand them? What about the oversight authorities in countries where we work? And I think it's healthy to talk about risks. It's, it's healthy to talk about limitations. We have the same conversations in, in other areas of the financial inclusion community. And, and in that sense, it should not be a surprise that we, we ask those questions in the crypto context. Uh, when it comes to digital credit, for example, there are decades-long efforts to extend access to finance for people that don't have collateral, that are, have lower incomes, that are more difficult to serve in more sparsely populated communities. Digital credit products were understood as a potential means to address that uh, through novel uses of data, through the reach of mobile phones and so forth. So kind of riding on the coattails of the mobile revolution. But we also understood that there could be risks in that space. It's a great world of opportunity, but it also presents risks that we need to think about in terms of over-indebtedness, appropriate use of data that is used for credit scoring purposes, to the extent that artificial intelligence is used for some of these types of products, you know, there's a, there's the question of algorithmic bias risk and whether we are inadvertently um, creating conditions to magnify pre-existing divides, particularly from a gender perspective. And it's really helpful for the financial community to talk about those issues, to determine whether we have a clear sense of how to avoid or or address them once they come up, whether from a market conduct perspective or from a consumer advocacy perspective or from a enabling environment perspective. So I would just say that the conversations that we have in the crypto space are just a natural extension of the of conversations in in other parts of the financial inclusion uh, arena. One last question, Paul. You think about five years from now, in terms of where you'd hope to see, um, you know, some of these crypto enabled technologies, but but where you see some evolution and how they're being adopted from, you know, from a policy perspective, um, you know, with your lens on the policy and the regulatory side of things, both the technology, where would you like to see the space evolve? And in particular, when you think about how it can be used to advance financial inclusion to the uh, unbanked underserved, where, where would you like to see the, the approach mature a bit if you had, if you had your choice in the next few years? 
I think the first thing that I would raise is something that I've mentioned a little bit already during the discussion, which is a stronger evidence base, you know, in terms of the risks, in terms of the opportunities, in terms of the limitations, and in terms of the actual impacts of this space with respect to specific issues that we care about. So we're talking right now about financial inclusion, but you could also have the same discussion about financial stability or about uh, consumer financial protection or about uh, illicit finance um, or or issues like that. So I would hope over time, and this is something that we've talked about in, in other publications that we've put out, hopefully there's a greater evidence base of those issues as they play out or might play out uh, in particular countries, because every country, every community is different. And uh, and having a credible evidence base backed by you know independent and objective evidence allows for better decision-making, whether it's by the policymakers in the country or by uh, impact investors like Axion or by, by service providers that are thinking about their digital transformation. So that's one. Number two, you know, we've talked about the need to improve safeguards and to address risks. That's something that the president's executive order from March 22 also addresses. And in particular, many countries where USAID operates do not yet have in place fully legal, regulatory, and supervisory frameworks that capture the issues consistent with global practices and, uh, and international standards that capture or address the issues presented by the crypto space. And until those frameworks are adopted and implemented by, by partner country stakeholders, the people that do want to experiment or innovate or, or use services in this space won't benefit from safeguards that might be necessary. You know, uh, a, a bank in a particular country where there is a deposit insurance scheme offers its customers the safeguards that having a depository insurance scheme provides. A crypto wallet that doesn't have any of that offers a different service perhaps, but people may not be aware that it's also potentially less safe. Uh, and so that's that's one area for sure. It'll take a long time, I think, for those frameworks to be developed, but that's something that hopefully occurs sooner rather than later. And then, you know, those two things combined with just having different stakeholders kind of consult with each other to better understand how communities are interacting with the service or or what are the continued unmet needs within those communities from a financial inclusion perspective, hopefully would lead to the development of services that on their merits can demonstrably address issues that we are talking about. So if over time you don't see very many crypto-based services addressing those needs, then maybe that means that uh, there what, there was maybe just less potential to do so in the first place. Or who knows, maybe the space will mature enough in a manner that actually manifests on the merits uh, the crypto space's ability to do so. That's it for this week's episode. And thanks for listening. You can learn more about USAID at usaid.gov or on Twitter at USAID. And as another quick reminder, don't forget to follow Axion Venture Lab on Twitter at Axion VLab or on our LinkedIn page. Finally, our upcoming FinTech for Inclusion Summit is coming up in early November and registration closes soon. More details on speakers, panels, and registration is available at fintechforinclusionsummit.com. 
We'll be back with another episode in two weeks when we'll be joined by Mercedes Bidar, the founder of Kipu. We'll see you then. And I've seen, you know, that, that gap between like what policymakers were thinking and, and doing regarding like in, the informal economy and, and informality in cities. And on the other side, actually what was going on on the ground and what these families were facing and what these women were facing, right? And I said, okay, there's there might be another like, another thing we could do, you know?